Hello, I'm Adam Levy, and this is the final episode in this special three-part podcast series from the BMJ. Today, we're talking about the importance of education for adolescents. This podcast is part of a collection on adolescent health and well-being, supported by the Fondation Botnard and PMNCH, the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health. The collection deals with all aspects of adolescent well-being, and so we've created this podcast series highlighting three ways young people can face barriers and burdens, and how we can change our systems to support adolescents better. And today we're taking a look at the effects of education during these young years, affecting our entire life courses as well as every aspect of our lives, including our health and social well-being. So who better to get us started today than Maziko Metemvu? As a development and global health practitioner, she has worked tirelessly to educate young people, both inside and outside the formal classroom environment. She's president and founder of the media network Uwale, which uses a wide range of media to educate young people in Malawi. And a central element of this work is teaching young people about sexual and reproductive health. So what kind of education did Maziko herself have on this topic? Uh, so I think the question should, you should have started asking me, <laughs> did you receive any education as an adolescent? <laughs> which I did not. And I remember also when I was in, um, in, in grade six, uh, we had this, uh, there was a section on, I think, puberty and development, etc. And I remember my teacher just quickly brushing through it. And I also remember that when I was an adolescent and I, I had my first period, the only thing my mom told me was that boys are bad and you can get pregnant. And it wasn't even telling, it was more like threatening me rather. So the only time that I actually started to learn about my health and all that information around adolescence and developing into an adult was when I had joined youth organizations and youth clubs. There were all these sessions and all these resources that were youthful, safe spaces where you know, I was able to learn information for the first time. And I always say that no young person should ever go through what I had experienced. So that's why, you know, I was inspired to create Uwale, where we create safe spaces for young people to talk about issues affecting their health. We don't ridicule any young person. We don't judge any young person. We don't believe that remaining silent is 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 the way that is going to bring about change. And this open attitude to education is vital for our health and our well-being. What we learn at a young age doesn't just impact our lives when we're adolescents, but has impacts throughout the course of our life. Here's Joanna Herrett of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. I think education has long been recognised as being a powerful determinant of health um, and well-being and also economic outcomes of course. We know that quality education can provide learners with the social and psychological and the other kinds of higher order thinking skills which are linked with improved well-being. There's also evidence from different fields which show us for example that um, 
women who have higher levels of education are more likely to prioritise and invest in the health of their children. So these are intergenerational benefits that you see from education. There's also really fundamental, simple, basic skills. Many of us first may have learnt how to wash our hands after going to the toilet at home, but those are behaviours that were really reaffirmed and reasserted through our schooling. We know that there's very specific things that education can do that improve livelihoods at the time of a child's life or an adolescent's life, but also have these multiplier effects into the future. We'll hear more from Joanna later in the episode. Now, back to Maziko. Her work embraces this idea of the multiplier effects of education, and she applies her approaches not just to a sexual and reproductive health context, but to a wide range of topics. So the work that I do revolves around empowering young people, health, um, gender equality, climate change, pretty much different uh, sectors that affect young people and that are working simultaneously to advance the well-being uh, of young people. And it's important to emphasize that Maziko has tackled this task of education using a wide array of approaches. So when we began our conversation, I asked her, And you've actually worked as a filmmaker, a poet, you've worked with the Young Feminist Network, with the Lancet Commission. Does all of this fit in with that underlying motivation of empowering young people and providing education ultimately for young people? Yes, uh, it does. So I believe in, in hope and I believe in faith. So hope that this is the generation that will change things and faith that we will be the generation that will not repeat the mistakes that the leaders before us made. And I mean, currently we're 1.8 billion young people in the world today, the world's largest cohort. And leveraging on this demographic dividend through collective action could potentially be a pivotal moment in history to drive change and action, not tomorrow, not next week, but today. And there is also a famous saying that says, Ubuntu ngumuntu ngabantu, which means that a person is a person through other people. And it reinforces the belief that we are all connected. You mentioned that your work is all about advancing the rights of young people. Why is education such a core element of that? So my parents grew up in absolute poverty and they shared stories of how poverty brought a myriad of complications and challenges like hunger, uh, early marriages, poor health care. But in all the gloominess of their story, like especially my father, like how he had to walk over 16 kilometers to access education bare feet, he always used to say that education is a key to success and it empowered him to gain skills to take care of his families. So I grew up with 15 siblings and cousins. One day, everything changed. We suddenly were not able to afford basic needs like we used to. So every little money that came into the house was invested in our education. With my education, I have been able to influence policy change and play a crucial role in reducing new HIV infections and ending child marriages, bridging gender disparities, as well as building the capacity of the development and education sector to better respond to issues related to health and well-being of adolescents and young people. 
Now, I think when a lot of people actually think about education, they're thinking about the traditional model of education in schools, in the classroom. But a lot of the work you're doing is outside of that kind of traditional box. Can, can you explain what your approach to education involves? Okay. I definitely think that informal education is important. I have always believed that we need to leverage on indigenous knowledge and methodologies to share information, to drive and inspire change. So we use arts, drama, sports, and film to raise awareness on issues that are affecting their health and their well-being. We also empower youth club leaders with skills to create safe spaces in their communities where they can talk about their issues without uh, feeling ridiculed. We also take into account the reality that not everyone has access to education or access to the internet. So what we do is we use community radios to air educational material, but then also empower young people with skills to thrive in a 21st century environment. We're also using sign language to raise uh, awareness and share information to young people with disabilities, which is also a path that is often overlooked in different interventions and approaches. You're speaking there about the need to use different approaches to educate different young people, but your work actually goes beyond just young people themselves, right? So if we only focus on young people without targeting the community leaders, without targeting the faith leaders, without targeting the, the uh, community gatekeepers, the traditional leaders, then we are missing out the whole point. We often have a savior complex in the development space where we think, I am the voice to the voiceless, but that's a savior complex. You can't be a voice to the voiceless because people have voices. We have to empower people to use their voices to drive change in their communities, to use their voices to take ownership of issues that are affecting them. And that is one of the things that we are proud of uh, as Uwale. I understand as well that peer-to-peer -peer education is a really important part of what you do. Does that then feed into this idea of allowing people and enabling people to speak up for themselves? Yes, definitely. So I've had the privilege of working with different generations and peer education is unique in a sense that it promotes an element of relatability. So young people always feel more comfortable and open with interacting with a peer. And yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. And it's often more fun and not boring like the other <laughs> <laughs> interventions and approaches. Do you have any examples, perhaps any stories which really capture how you feel like you have been able to reach young people and make a difference? Yes, uh, a project that we had called Zona, uh, which is Chichewa for the truth. And ideally what we did was we co-developed a a radio series with other young people. Sometimes when you think of the work that you're doing, you think, okay, this is just a small thing. I mean, oh, it's just a, it's just a radio show. It's just a drama series. You know, it's, it's just young people talking. But those are the things that bring impact. Those are the things that change mindsets. And so we've seen this series also 
inspire and empower young people to advocate for youth-friendly health services in their communities. We've also seen different, uh, different partners, for example, that had slashed down the prices uh, of school fees. And it's heartwarming to see an increase in enrollment in schools as well. So that's, I guess, a great example of what can happen when everything is done right. But when organisations are actually engaging and involving young people, how do we make sure that engagement has a meaningful impact? We need to understand that young people are not a homogeneous group, right? And ensuring that young people representing different sectors, especially vulnerable groups, are part of the the decision-making tables young people have to be meaningfully engaged from the design of the intervention to the monitoring and evaluation and the finishing of that intervention because you cannot impose solutions to a group of people. You need to hear from them what works best for them. But then we also understand that we need a holistic approach We need to make sure that we have champions in each and every sector of our community. We need to have parents as champions. We need to have religious leaders as champions. We need to have traditional leaders as champions to really advance the health and well-being of every young person everywhere. That was Maziko Matemvu, the first of our interviewees in today's episode. And while we'll look at education in all its forms today, especially its role in promoting health and well-being, we'll be coming back to sexual and reproductive health throughout the podcast. This episode marks the third and final part of this mini-series reflecting on adolescent well-being. Our first episode discussed connection and our second took a look at the unique physical and mental health challenges of these formative years. This series ties in with a special collection of papers on the topic published in the BMJ last year and spanning the range of adolescent well-being. And in today's discussion, we have Stefan Gehrman of the Fondation Botnar, Janani Vijay Raghavan of Plan International Canada, and Atika Adra Oyon of Plan International Bangladesh. But before we get to them, I'd like to reintroduce you to Joanna Herrett, who works at the education sector at UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. And Joanna's work makes clear just how much education impacts all other aspects of adolescent well-being. So I work in a team that looks specifically at the question of education for health and well-being. So we are working with governments in different countries around the world to see how their education can include content around health, around well-being, but then also we have a role at the international level to commission new research to understand these issues, to elevate the voices of young people in debates um, and bring diverse experiences so that different countries can learn from one another, all, I suppose, with an intention to advance the field of making sure that education is doing as much as it can to contribute to good health and well-being. You've mentioned this intergenerational effect that education can have. Are there other ways that an individual's education can actually affect and potentially benefit the wider community? Absolutely. I think 
education is in part it's learning but it's also a, a process of socialization so I think we've definitely moved away in most places from an idea of school being about rote learning about simply passing exams getting the best mark in order to go on and get a job but a sense that we're um nurturing individuals and groups uh, to be the next generation of, uh, of parents, of people sitting on juries, of uh, professionals uh, making decisions um, and, you know, beyond that, people moving around the world and engaging, hopefully, in a healthy way with the planet and also with other people. And we've already spoken about how important education is to our health, but does that form something of a feedback loop where actually our health also has an active impact on our education? Yes, it really does. In fact, one of our mantras here is a healthy learner learns better and a better educated person is healthier. And I think in many ways it can be quite obvious to see if you are suffering from malnutrition, you are not going to be able to benefit from sitting and learning in the classroom, either because you simply feel hungry or because the neurological development that comes with good nutrition isn't there for you to be able to benefit from the teaching that may be happening. And there's other, there's other cases where we can think on missing school through ill health, but also longer term issues, maybe someone who's suffering from anxiety or depression. For an adolescent, that can be debilitating in terms of their educational process. And that's why it's really, really important that schools are able to recognise and think about health issues and the good health of their learner. Because only if those learners are in good health and in this safe and supportive environment are they really going to be able to benefit from education. So there's definitely um, a feedback loop, as you put it, yeah. So the health of an individual can affect their ability to effectively access education. What other factors are there at play which will affect an individual's ability to, to get the education that they need? It effectively depends on where you are born and where you are living. If you don't speak the language, the primary language of a country, that could be a major barrier to you engaging in education. Something that we're seeing a lot more and talking about a lot more, and I think this is really important, is uh, the way that boys are disengaging from education, which is much more apparent than we have ever really seen it before. And there's plenty of push and pull factors for that. Uh, but one of them is wanting to join the labour market, uh, family pressure to earn money. It depends, like I say, it can really depend where you live. And it's really incumbent on us to, to look at the information and the data and to frankly speak to young people and families to understand what it is that's stopping them from staying in school or from accessing school. Can you give a sense of how access to education has actually changed over time? Are we seeing improvements in children's ability to get the education that they need? I think the overall answer to that is yes. We have, over the last 20 years, seen improvements in the number of children accessing formal education, being able to attend primary and or secondary school. There are still a lot of children out of school. But one of the changes we've seen also over the last 20 years is uh, a different a difference in the gender um, imbalance in who is dropping out of school, um, which is obviously largely in part to vast improvements in and work done to make sure that girls are fulfilling their right to education. So that's something which I think we can be uh, in some ways proud of. 
Um, but we do still need to pay attention to all of those children who are still not accessing education. Can you share any stories about any of the projects that you've been involved in, which might have played some kind of role in those kinds of improvements? Yes, absolutely. I, I'd love to. I can recall very vividly conversations uh, with a, a, a young woman um, who was living with HIV. She talked to me um, about the impact of her head teacher learning about HIV and understanding what it meant to be a supportive person in her life. And she was finding it very difficult to go to school regularly. She was a teenager with all the usual teenage preoccupations. and the, But one of the things she found difficult was just managing her health. And the head teacher couldn't really understand what was happening. And finally, the family spoke and, and opened up to the head teacher. And she said, OK, well, I will make a commitment. It was the fact that she didn't judge her and that this young woman who felt so alone with this enormous secret felt like she had an ally in the school so that's one example which I found particularly moving and that came about through work which we and other colleagues had been and some local NGOs who'd been doing to raise awareness specifically with school teachers and head teachers about the issues of HIV and what it meant to be living with HIV these projects to raise awareness to create a better sense of sensibility really had um, really had made a difference in this particular girl's life and I can only imagine that it was a same for many hundreds of other students as well. I think the final example is around the issue of violence and bullying and and we have done work with groups of young lesbian gay um, people who have really experienced high levels of violence in schools really those are some of the groups of young people who have experienced the highest levels of bullying and violence and work with schools to try to create uh, a safer environment for those young people which means that they come to school more regularly that they're not scared those for me are some of the ways which I think education in a very practical way has changed and can change so that it's more engaged in understanding with those people who are marginalised, who cannot access school at the moment, um, or can do better in their education, if only uh, the policies and the environment are more um, propitious for that. What are your hopes then for the future of both access to education and the quality of education that young people around the world receive? I um actually fairly hopeful that things will only carry on getting better in terms of children and young people accessing education. Where I think we have a huge amount of work to do is on the quality of education, and I'm not alone in thinking that. The data shows us that there are too many countries around the world where too many children in a classroom are just not achieving in the way that we would expect at that age group, which suggests that there's some really deep-rooted systemic problems. And yet, on the flip side, we see this extraordinary digital transformation where so many young people have access to all the information that could possibly be available in the world at the touch of a button. How do we how do we deal? First of all, it's a dichotomy because not everybody has access to that digital technology, but also it's a challenge for the teaching profession because 20 years ago, teachers would stand at the front of the classroom and dispense information. Today, that's not really the role of a teacher in many places. 
I don't think the education system as it is currently set up, a little bit like a factory, where we only tend to be judging people by their exam scores, I don't think that is a system that is still fit for purpose for the world that we are living in and the changes that we're seeing. When you think about the education that you received when you were an adolescent, do you see the threads from that in your life today, either in how you approach your health or or in other aspects of your life and well-being? Oh, absolutely. And I... I was very privileged to to benefit from from a really good quality um, education and one that was already quite progressive in that it saw us as adolescents, as agents of change and as young adults. And and I think also the the health uh, side of it, although interestingly, you know, I, I work now primarily on uh, sexual and reproductive health for, for adults. Uh, that is one thing that I did not really receive when I was at school. So I also think that's very, very important. And I remember even uh, when I was younger, um, talking with peers, um, and we would get information from, from each other about, you know, relationships or sexual health. Uh, and it wasn't really something that came formally through school. So I do feel strongly that we do need to make sure that we're including all different kinds of health education in the school setting, not least because it is uh, a period of one's life where people begin to explore their sexuality and begin to um, start having sexual relationships. And it's absolutely imperative that they know well ahead of time um, how to manage that and what they want to think about it and how to negotiate um, consent and healthy relationships with their peers. Joanna Herrett there. As Joanna just mentioned, it's vital that we reflect on alternative forms of education and how our educational structures could be updated for the 21st century. We'll be returning to that topic in our final interview of today with Stefan German of the Fondation Botnar. And in just a moment, we'll also hear how getting sexual and reproductive education right is absolutely vital in contexts where child marriage is all too common. All of the themes touched on in this podcast series, plus so much more, are discussed in letters published in the BMJ Special Collection on Adolescence. They cover everything from climate change's impact on young people to connection, the digital world, and the future of education. To read them, search for BMJ Adolescent Wellbeing or follow the links in the podcast notes. Now it's time to turn to an essential example of education's power to transform systems of oppression. Here's Atika Ajra Oyon of Plan International, Bangladesh. From my childhood, I faced so many gender discriminations in Bangladesh. The prevalence of gender discrimination is everywhere. So there was a passion for me to work for equal rights for all. So it was my uh, dream to work with Plan International Bangladesh. A central part of Plan's work is around the practice of child marriage, a practice that remains relatively common in Bangladesh. Janani Vijay Raghavin, a health advisor at Plan International Canada, explains what this means. I mean, basically it's children very young, a very young age, who have not finished their education, young girls who are being forced into marriage. It's a very harmful concept. It's really um, driven by a lot of different factors, including, you know, gender inequalities and poverty. 
It may seem relatively intuitive that child marriage is harmful for the girls and young women who are married, but the harms of this practice are wide-ranging and affect the whole society, way beyond the two individuals who are married. Child marriage is a huge driver in adolescent pregnancy. Complications during pregnancy, during childbirth, are among the leading causes of death in girls aged 15 to 19 around the world. And 90% of adolescent pregnancies are in the developing world, and they're among girls who are already married. They're also at higher risk of experiencing sexual violence in their lifetime, and this violence tends to put these girls at more risk of sexual, physical, and psychological violence. And often young girls who are um, forced into child marriage will drop out of school. They do not really get to realize their own potential, their own interests, and their own um, you know, dreams and hopes. And it's a huge violation of their rights at so many different levels. And the impact child marriage has on child pregnancy can have profound impacts across generations. Here's Atika again. In real case scenario, these girls who are married before 15 will become a mother at the age of 15 to 16 years. It is like child bearing a, another child. And all, all the dream of this girl who got married before 15 or 18 just win. So this is the consequences actually. So given the devastating damage child marriage can cause in myriad ways, why is the practice still common in so many contexts? What are some of the cultural forces leading to child marriage in Bangladesh? There is an idea that earlier girls are married, they will get better profile husband. Parents think that a girl who have already menstruation, keeping her in their home is equal keeping thousand evils at their home. And these cultural norms are just one of the drivers. Crises, whether an environmental emergency or a conflict, can reinforce these harmful practices. Often communities in, in experiencing conflict and co- climate change will tend to choose a negative coping mechanism to marry their young daughters off in order to, you know, one less mouth to feed and maybe there's an opportunity to get a dowry in some communities. And so, however, in the longer term, these are quite harmful to the girl, but also to the society as a whole. When a girl is, you know, taken out of edu- her education system, it has a huge repercussion on a society because... So many young girls are out of the workforce. So many young girls are not contributing to the improvement of the economy in the country. In her work, Atika has encountered many women and girls whose lives have been shaped by child marriage. And so often education, or lack of access to education, plays a pivotal role in these stories. While I was facilitating a session, after the session, one of our participants came to me crying, said, I didn't know I can choose about the family planning process. I can decide which process I need to prefer. She was married at 16 or 15 years old. She was also explained that she was forced to marry a guy. She faced so many forceful sexual relationships and all, and she didn't know that she can say no to her husband. 
you will find these cases everywhere in our country. And breaking this pattern and preventing cases like this is at the core of PLAN's work on child marriage. Our focus is ensuring that millions of girls can avoid marriage early, that they can stay in school and then decide for themselves whether and when to marry. Um, our approach is really making sure that the rights of these young girls is really taken into account, making sure that they have what they need to be able to make the choices for themselves and for their own lives. But there are so many different structures that can contribute to child marriage, cultural, economic, political, to name just a few. And so PLAN has to adapt its approach for every environment it operates in. Because in some cases it's different. Some countries are more affected by conflict, some countries are more affected by climate change. So it really depends on the context and uh, the sort of cultural norms that exist where we're working. And so we work at different levels and at individual levels, at the community level, at the national, regional, international level. It's really a multi and very holistic approach that we take. So for example, if we're working with the with schools and with an education system, we'd work with teachers to make sure that uh, teachers are aware of girls who are at risk of, of child marriage, finding ways to build non-formal education for girls. So for example, if a girl drops out of school, that they have another an alternative pathway to re-enter school. So that's non-formal. And as Atika explains, working to address child marriage also calls for the involvement of religious leaders. In Bangladesh, the contribution of religious leaders in decision-making in the families has a great impact. So Plan International Bangladesh also working with these religious leaders, schools, teachers, school management committees, uh, actually work together to prevent child marriage. The Kaji Imam actually who are religious leaders, they, they also verify the age of bride and groom so that any child marriage cannot happen. Across the board though, education has an essential role to play. Whether that's educating young people on the harms and warning signs of child marriage, or supporting those that have experienced child marriage so that they can continue their education after having dropped out of school. The other thing that staying in school can do where we're available is having comprehensive sexuality education. And that means making sure that young girls and boys have access to information around menstrual health, around puberty, around con access to contraception. It, it can really work to strengthen agency by equipping adolescents with knowledge, giving them the resources they need to make decisions, build their confidence. It, it's also an important uh, element for young people to feel connected, to feel connected in schools, with peers, with teachers, and often to have role models. And all of these aspects are, are really critical um, for young people as they, as they go through adolescence, as they start to build their lives. When all this comes together and young women and girls are able to get their education and the support that they need, this can have profound, life-altering impacts on their lives. My most favourite story, and I really feel great to share this, one of our participants, she was facing the same forceful situation by her parents 
at that period she had learned about communication about the actually social interventions by plan international by government and all these things she also know about the consequences of child marriage on her body on society on her family and also know when she feels the forceful situation how to seek help from government and from others through this reporting protocol system she actually uh, reported that she has a potential forced marriage and the girl was rescued from this situation and she has continued the education and now she is admitted in an university and when all this story comes to us it feels really great experiences like this are at the heart of this kind of work which aims to transform the futures of young women and girls but to achieve this all different factors need to be considered and often organizations overlook a driver of injustices that will only become more important over the coming years climate change the reality is that it's really affecting everything that we're doing it affects how we implement our programs for health programs how we Im- implement education programs you know for example i don't know i was just recently working on a project or a proposal for um addressing gender based violence in the horn of africa and if you didn't really consider the huge droughts and the nutritional deficits that people are facing you know you you that's a huge driver of gender based violence right so every sort of health issue has some relationship now to climate change Child marriage is such a stark example of how issues affecting young people have so many contributing factors and how vital it is that our responses reflect this by addressing issues across all different sectors and for both Janani and Atika being able to carry out this work has immense personal significance you know sometimes i think about how if i had just been born in a different family in a different part of india for instance my life could have been very very different you know i think that i'm so grateful for the sort of opportunities that i have had and a lot of it has to do with my parents knowing the importance of education but also you know making sure that we had equal you know equal rights i feel i'm one of the beneficiary of combating our demarriage in bangladesh so sharing uh, all these things feels great actually this project is like my baby the age of the project is exactly same of my son i'm growing with this project and with my son so it really feels great when i share all these stories to others <laughs> that was atika adra oyon and janani vijay ragavan and as they both made clear child marriage is an issue with implications far beyond education and so if you want to learn more about the unique issues of adolescent health and connection make sure you listen to the first two episodes of this podcast series as mentioned at the start of the episode this podcast is part of a collection on adolescent health and well-being supported by the fondation botnar and the partnership for maternal newborn and child health PMNCH. 
And recently, PMNCH convened the Global Forum for Adolescents, part of the 1.8 Young People for Change campaign, with thousands participating and over 1 million engaging and creating real impact. There were more than 120 national events in support of the campaign and forum, and the What Young People Want initiative advocating for adolescent health and well-being. The Global Forum culminated with the launch of the Agenda for Action for Adolescents, which sets a course for governments and stakeholders from all sectors to ensure their policies and programs are truly meaningful for young people. Visit 1.8.org, that's 1.point8.org, to learn more about the Agenda for Action for Adolescents and commitments to adolescent health and well-being. As we've already discussed in this episode, education is a core pillar of young people's well-being. But often when we discuss the gaps in education on a global scale, the focus can be on access, or lack of access, to education. But this is only the start of the story. After all, the quality and form of learning also has a huge impact. And that's something that Stefan German, CEO of the Fondation Botnar, has spent a great deal of time reflecting and working on. And so the idea today that's still very dominant in many countries around the world that, that you can have a group of 15-year-olds sitting for an hour in rows, 30, 40 people, and a teacher up front sort of providing a lecture and them sitting there and somehow absorbing this is just, you know, it's just not working anymore. It's, it's like we educated, you know, 150 years ago. Nothing really has changed in that setup. And, and so we really waste a lot of resources by creating education and school experiences for young people where they basically spend time there, but don't really learn much. And this really needs to change. And changing this system is at the heart of what the Fondation Botnar do. The Fondation is a philanthropic organisation that aims to transform cities to foster inclusion and engagement of young people. And so to start off our conversation, I asked Stefan for his perspective on why education is such a crucial element of that transformation. The role of education is more important, I think, than ever. We are living in very fast-changing environments. There is a, a, a quote from an American street philosopher, Eric Hover, in times of rapid change, learners inherit the world, whereas the learned, in bracket those who seem to know, are beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. And so I think that the question is what type of education, and we probably can unpack that a little bit as part of this uh, conversation. I'm certain that we will. Do you personally feel we're currently doing enough to support adolescent education? No, I think we are collectively failing, actually, a lot of young people in, in their education. We, we still are, seem to be unable, or I would say rather unwilling, to ensure that every young person actually has access to education. The second one is we are failing young people in terms of uh, what curriculums and what actually young people learn and whether young people will eventually be fit to leverage their education 
to live uh, a life that is meaningful and is healthy and contributes towards their well-being. We're talking here about the form that education can take in order to improve the outcomes for young people. But what about, I suppose, the even more basic question than that, access to education and political and financial support for education for young people in the first place? How can we improve these perhaps more fundamental questions? We need to, on one hand, invest more resources by by government, but as well, there is really an openness for for policymakers to really see how can we ensure that the existing resources that are actually spent on education really have a, a more meaningful sort of result out of this education. And the other side really is that collectively... In many countries, we, we just need to invest more into education. We, we, you know, why are we not paying teachers well? But that leads to another question, you know, what, do we need to have teachers that take on a fairly different role with, with access to technology, generative AI? Is it the role of an educator more to create and facilitate learning and to motivate and inspire rather than teach content. Because we, the more we can create that access through digital means, we can bridge some of the gaps. I think speaking of that hope and that optimism really brings to mind the fact that so many young people actually feel the opposite. For example, climate change is deeply affecting the mental health of adolescents, uh, which is touched on in the BMJ collection. How can education then support young people, not just in their academic learning, but also in their mental well-being? Yeah, if if we look at today, I mean, one of the big global challenges is is mental well-being and and mental health. And we, we have, we see clearly that the role of education and, and, and education spaces can deeply contribute to uh, connectedness and 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 by creating again more participatory spaces where young people can actively engage, it builds their resilience. It has direct direct influence on young people's mental health and mental well-being. That's that's one example. That was Stefan Gammon, the final interviewee of this episode and indeed of this podcast mini series. If you haven't already, do make sure you check out the special collection in the BMJ, which covers the full breadth of what it means to support adolescent well-being. This series was produced for the BMJ by myself, with support from the Fondation Botnar and PMNCH, the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Levy.